Y'all, when um, video surfaced of George Floyd being murdered by police, people quickly took to the streets crying out, no peace, no justice, right? No peace, no justice. This cry, which is echoing across our nation and is reverberating in our streets, even downtown, can be traced back to 1967, where Dr. King chanted the very same words, no peace, no justice, right? outside a California prison that was detaining people who were protesting the Vietnam War. He said, I see these two struggles right, for peace and for justice as one struggle. Right? No peace, no justice. No justice, no peace. There's a lot of talk about justice these days, but what exactly does that word mean? I was recently uh, on Spotify listening to a funny playlist uh, when all of a sudden this old 1980s rock song came on. In the song, Mick Jones, is the lead singer of the band Foreigner, sings, and I, I'm going to try to say it without singing it, but I might just have to sing it. He says, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. You all know this song? It sounds super cheesy when he sings it. I, I, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. But there's a real truth in this lyric, and I think it applies to our passage tonight. You see, when we come to these big topics like love, or we come to big topics like justice, we don't simply want to open up a dry and dusty dictionary and see what it has to say there. That's not sufficient to define things like love or justice. When we come to these big topics, we want somebody to paint us a picture of what it really looks like. We want somebody who's going to capture our imagination. I want to know what love is. I want to know what justice is. And I want you to show me. Right? Well, the Bible does that. Uh, the Bible does that for, uh, on the very first page, uh, on page one. The Bible on page one in Genesis 1 and 2 shows us a world where everything is in its right place and it's doing what it was designed to do. Your dictionary, my dictionary, will define justice as the right exercise of power and authority. Right? Justice is the right exercise of power and authority. And while Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't say the word justice, it does paint a picture for us of what that, right, the right exercise of power and authority, what that actually looks like. You don't have Genesis 1 and 2 before you. It is a passage that we've been looking at uh, these past few weeks. But if you were to turn to page 1, what you would see is God creating the universe and everything in it. He creates spaces and he fills them. He creates kingdoms, as it were, and then he appoints kings and queens to rule over those things. So, for example, he creates day and night, and then he creates sea and sky, and then he creates dry land. And then what does he do over here? Well, he creates the sun and moon to rule over the day and the night. And he creates birds and fish to rule over the sea and the sky. And then he creates land animals and human beings, right, to steward over it all, uh, to love him, to love each other, to love the world that he has made. This is the picture that is painted for us. In the opening chapters of the Bible, a picture is painted where everything is under God's authority. He's the king, but we're all exercising our God-given authority just as he intended it's good. It's beautiful. Everything is right and rightly ordered. It's a picture of justice. When everything is in its right place doing what God designed it to do, the end result is peace, or in Hebrew, shalom. Shalom is 
uh, more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of justice. Shalom is the way that things are supposed to be. Shalom, as one theologian puts it, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. This is what we see in the beginning. And it is a far cry from what we see in the world today. If what God gave us in the beginning was a world full of justice and shalom, what we see today is a world full of injustice, leading to disorder and chaos, hatred and hostility. And the question we have is, does God care? Does God care about us and the mess that we've made? Is he at all concerned with the ways that we use or abuse our power? I like to do uh, puzzles with my five-year-old daughter, Willa. You all know how puzzles go, right? You empty the box and you flip it over and you look at what's the picture on the cover. And then you try to make this mess that's on the table look like this picture. And I think that is a very apt way of thinking about this and describing um, justice. This broken, messy world is supposed to look like this picture uh, that we see uh, on the box, this picture that is painted for us in Genesis 1 and 2, that world that was full of wholeness and justice and delight. Well, last week, Sarah Jane did a very good job of uh, describing how that world came to look like the world that we woke up in today. But what we want to know is, is God committed to taking this broken puzzle of a world and is he committed to putting it back together again so that it looks like what it was supposed to look like in the beginning? And what I want to show you tonight from Ephesians 2 is that the answer, of course, is yes in some ways, right? You could probably anticipate that. Uh, it would be a short sermon if it, if it was no. We would all just pack up and go home, <laughs> right? But yes, God loves justice, and he's absolutely committed to putting this puzzle back together again. I want you to see that from this passage. But secondly, I want you to see that God wants you and he wants me. He wants us together to be agents of justice, uh, working alongside with him, participating in that project, right? So it's not just him who's putting the pieces together again. We get to actually do that with him. That's all here in Ephesians 2. And trust me, we'll, we'll go through it, right? So you can see it for yourself. In the passage that we heard read, we are described a lot like that broken puzzle. I want you to listen to the words that it uses to describe you and me. The words are separated, right? alienated, strangers, without hope, without God, far off, right? The picture that is painted of our world today is a picture of a broken world that's full of broken people and full of broken relationships, scattered, right, uh, fragmented and disconnected, a broken puzzle. This is the world that God has come to save. It's this world. And this is where Christianity takes a major detour from every other world religion. Most world religions acknowledge that we have a very big problem, right? A problem with suffering, a problem with injustice. But 
you get lots of different answers as to what the solution is. In the face of great suffering and injustice, right, our God does not smirk or smile like the Buddha, cool and stoic and detached. That's not his reaction. Our God doesn't turn his back on the situation, nor does he resort to shouting advice from the sidelines. Instead, our God enters into the chaos. Our God steps into the fray. I love verse 17. Verse 17 reads, And he came, and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And I want you to listen to that. And he came. He came. God entered in. This is an amazing claim. That the the God who made the universe, the God who spoke everything to existence, doesn't just observe the things that we have done. He doesn't just watch us wreck the world. He entered into it. It's like Shakespeare becoming part of one of his plays. He, he steps in and he preaches peace. He's not immune to our suffering and he's not indifferent to the world's injustice. The Bible says that he takes it on, that he comes and he preaches peace and he preaches it with words and he preaches it with his life. Here I'm talking about Jesus, right? God in the flesh. What does it sound like when Jesus preaches peace? Well, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is a story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are these. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Translation, if I was to put it in my own words, Everything that you long for, everything that you have been waiting for, it's happening right now. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Everything that you want, uh, all that hurt, all the heartache, uh, this, this broken world set to rights, it's happening right now. It's happening in my coming, Jesus says. Shalom, justice, the kingdom of God, the picture on that puzzle box. I am bringing that, Jesus says. So turn around and receive this good news. This is what he's about. He preaches this message. And he preaches it to people who need to hear it. He's not preaching this message to uh, people who have their life in tip-top shape as if such people existed. He's preaching this life to people whose lives are a wreck who are as in much bad shape as the world. People like you and me. Right? People who, uh, despite the many promises that we make to our parents or to our friends or to ourselves, that we're going to get it right next time and fail, like the next day. He's preaching peace to, to that kind of person. He's preaching peace to people who wrestle with uh, anxiety and depression. He's preaching peace to people who are struggling uh, with addiction. Preaching peace to people who are self-righteous and proud. Preaching peace to messy, broken people. People like me. People like you. And this is not just something that Jesus says. This is something that Jesus does. He heals sick people. 
He casts out demons and dispels darkness. He raises uh, the dead. His message of peace is embodied in physical and tangible, concrete ways. And here's why this is significant. You're not just hearing Jesus talk about putting the pieces back together again. You get to see him do it. God came and he's preaching peace and he's doing it. We broke the world, but he has come to put it back together again. Jesus is doing all of this, mind you, not just as an, as an example to follow, but he's doing it as our representative. This is what is being communicated in verses 14 and 15 of our passage here. It says in those verses that Jesus, he himself, is our peace. Not an example of how to be at peace. He is our peace. He's won it. He's done it. Y'all, this year is an election year. No surprise there, right? And last night there was a debate which was horrible to watch. But this year is an election year, which means that we get to elect representatives, including a president. An in representative government like ours, a person like a president gets to represent everyone under him or her. That's to say, when a president declares war, everyone under him goes to war with him, right? We can't all declare war on, let's say, North Korea, but the president can. And when he does, we're all there with him. By the same token, right, this one man can sign a peace treaty. And when he signs peace treaty, it's as if we all signed a peace treaty too. This is the way that representative government works, right? We put forward one man to represent the whole. And this is how Jesus is described in the Bible. He's described as a representative. God becomes like one of us. He takes on human flesh. You could think of it this way. He puts on the team jersey and then he goes onto the field and he wins the game. But he does it with our jersey on, right? He wins it for the team. You see, Jesus, as our representative, loves God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his strength. And he loves his neighbor as himself. He, he fulfills the laws of God, right? He, he, he uh, does everything that justice asks of him. If you think of justice as exercising power and authority rightly, he does it, and he does it perfectly. And that's what these very confusing verses of 14 and 15 about Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What it's saying there is that Jesus lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He lived a just life. And he did this in a position of leadership as our representative, on our behalf. He himself is our peace. His success is credited to you. You get to, partic- you get to partake in it. You didn't win the game, but he did. And because he's on your team, you get to celebrate in it. It's your victory too. That's what this is all about. But this is not just saying that Jesus did everything like perfectly. It's also saying that Jesus paid the price for our failures. He didn't just do everything that we were supposed to do. He also, did, he also paid the price for all the things that we failed to do. He pays the price for all of our injustice. It's right here in the text as well. If you smash my my car, my my Subaru Forester out there with a baseball bat, 
our relationship would be broken. It would at least be estranged, right? There would be tension between you and me, right? There just would. If you smash my car with a baseball bat, there's going to be tension until that car is repaired, until that wrong is made right, until somebody pays for it, right? And in essence, Jesus, our representative, steps up to the plate and says, I will pay the price for the smashed up car. I'm going to pay the price for the beat up world. And Jesus didn't smash it, right? We did. You did. I did. But Jesus says, I will pay the price for it. And he pays for it with his blood. See, we deserve the death penalty, but Jesus dies in our place. He takes the punishment in our stead. We deserve hell. We deserve estrangement from God forever. That would be just. But Jesus tasted this too, so you don't have to. Verse 13 reads, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off and disconnected, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. All that tension that was created by uh, that uh, taking the bat to the car, all that tension, all that estrangement, it's gone because Jesus has abolished it. He's closed the gap. Because Jesus experienced the wrath of God in your place, there's no more wrath left for you or for me. It would be unjust for God to punish the same sin twice. Jesus has paid it in full. There is no more condemnation for you. All of your sins have been dealt with once and for all in Jesus. This is what this is saying. If it's, if it's not true, then, you know, this is the greatest hoax. But if it is true, it's the greatest news. It's the greatest thing you'll ever hear. The wall of hostility that separated you from God has been come crashing down. Justice has been served. Before we move on to point number two, let's be very clear about point number one. Does God care about justice? Does God care about the ruin our world has become? Does God see George Floyd being choked to death? Does God hear Elijah McLean crying for his life? Does he care? And rather than simply take you to those places in the Bible, and there are many, Psalms 11, Psalm 35, uh, Psalm 33, Isaiah 61. I mean, I, it's a long list. Instead of taking you to these places, they just say, yeah, God loves justice. God loves justice. God loves justice. He does. Instead, I wanted to, I want to show you. I don't want to just tell you. I want to show you. I want to show you Jesus. I want to take you to a God who draws near to the brokenhearted and who weeps with those who weep. I want to show you a God who isn't afraid of conflict and who fights oppression and who champions peace. I want to show you a God who hates injustice and is even willing to suffer injustice at our hands so that someday there will be no more injustice. And so that people who are far off can be brought near. Does God care about justice? Yes, he does. Jesus is exhibit A. He is absolutely committed to putting this puzzle back together again. But here comes the second point, which is that he wants you and me to participate in this work too. God is at work doing this, but in his great kindness, we are drawn into that work too. 
There's a reconciliation that happens between us and God, but this leads to another reconciliation, which is between us as well. It's true that forgiven people forgive. It's true that people who've experienced grace show it to others. Peace, justice leads to peace, and then that peace leads to more acts of justice. There's this interesting dynamic. Just as no peace leads to no justice or no justice leads to no peace, the opposite is also true. When God serves justice, it leads to peace between God and man and man and man and woman. And that peace leads to more acts of justice, bringing on more peace, and the cycle continues in in a redemptive circle. Listen to verse 18. It says, For through him, that's through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this we uh, is Paul talking to uh, a bunch of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? These were ancient and arch enemies who wanted nothing to do with each other, who hated each other and, and would, I mean, do and say the worst things to one another. But he's saying, we both have access now. Uh, to this one spirit through the Father. God has brought us in here. And I like to think of this as a triangle. It's almost like you've got a person over here and a person over here, Jew or Gentile. You could think of it just mortal enemies. But as they move closer to God, they get closer to each other too. That's kind of the dynamic. You are here far apart, but as we move to God together, we're getting closer and closer to one another. Or you could think of it as adoption. It's like if Jesus adopts Morgan over here uh, into uh, his family, and then he adopts Izzy over here into his family, well, you know what that makes Morgan and Izzy? Sisters. They might have been strangers. They might have even been enemies, but now they've been brought into the same family. And it's sort of like, well, if we're in the same family now, we're going to have to start acting like it. That's the logic here. God is bringing people together who otherwise hated each other, and he's making them family members. And, it's, and because we've both experienced forgiveness, because we've both experienced grace, it's like we have some currency. We can start dealing with forgiveness and grace with each other. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Your family. And he concludes in verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I love this imagery. It's saying that God is taking disparate stones, stones that would never touch each other, and he's placing them in close proximity so that they can touch and be glued together. And in that place of peace, in that place of reconciliation, especially amongst those who once hated each other. It's in that place that God can be found. It's in that place that God lives. You want to find where God lives? Look there. Where mortal enemies live together in peace. That's a testimony so not only God's grace, it's, it, it, it's a sign of where he lives. Jamar Tisby, who wrote the book um, that we're looking at in book study, The Scholar of Compromise, he writes in this book that reconciliation is not something that we achieve on our own. It's something that we receive. It's not something that we achieve. It's something that we receive. 
justice and peace, reconciliation. This is something that God is doing, has done, and is doing in Jesus. It is something that we receive from him. Uh, We receive it when we come to him uh, with empty hands. Hands, I would dare even say, covered in blood. Uh, Hands that just dropped the baseball bat, that smashed the car. When we come to him with those hands and we ask for forgiveness and we ask that he would be our representative, that his success would be credited to our account and that our uh, penalties would be laid on his back. When we come to him like that, God says, you bet. It's forgiven and we are reconciled. Reconciliation begins with God. It begins with that connection. But then it flows out to the world around us in that order. Uh, My favorite way of illustrating this is the analogy of a water sprinkler. Uh, When Megan and I lived in our old house on Green Street, we inherited a muddy yard. It was dirty and chaotic. But we began to put things in order. We put in a patio. We put in... We laid some grassy, we landscaped the backyard, and before you knew it, that this thing that was nothing became something, and this thing that was disordered became ordered and beautiful and full of life. And then we put a, a sprinkler system, the kind that you just hook up to a hose. We put that in the middle, and we would turn it on so that that thing in the middle of the garden would keep it green and keep it good. But if that sprinkler system ever got disconnected from the source, it would go dry and everything around it would begin to die. And very similarly, by way of analogy, God made a good world and he made it full of peace and full of justice. And he put us, human beings, uh, in the middle of that garden, in the middle of this world, much the same way that we put that sprinkler in our backyard. And he put us in the middle to keep it that, to keep it that way, to keep it good, to keep it green, to keep it full of life. But friends, we've become disconnected from God. Again, you can listen to Sarah Jane's message, right? We're disconnected. We're far off. We're separated. We are dry inside. We are spiritually dead, and the world around us is dying. And we come to God with this question, do you care? Does does God care about the state of the world? Does he care about justice? He does very much. He still wants that good green earth. He still wants that world that's full of justice. How is he going to get it? It's not by bypassing the sprinkler system. It's not by bypassing human beings. The solution is to get us hooked up to him again. The solution is to get us reconnected so that his love and his goodness and his beauty and his truth can flow into us and then flow out of us once more. That's, that's, the, that's the secret. How is God going to get justice? How is he going to right the wrongs? It's by getting you connected to him again. Because when you taste and see that God is good, you're able to help other people to taste and see that God is good. When you get a taste of his peace and taste of his justice, you can be an agent of peace and justice in that order. So what does this look like in action? Here's how I'm going to close. First of all, before you can channel his justice to the world, you need to be connected to him and experience it yourself. And I think it's just a fair place to start Have you experienced that? Have you received Jesus as your representative, as the one that you need? We'll start there. Second, let the Bible renew your imagination. 
You want to fix the world? That's great. God does too. But how do you imagine such a place? How do you imagine a world set to rights? Is it the same picture that's on this box? Is it the kingdom of God? Is it this kingdom of shalom, the way that God intended it in the beginning? Or is your vision, uh, is what you're working towards uh, your kingdom? The kingdom that you want to make, justice on your own terms. Look, if you're fighting for justice like that, odds are you're doing more harm than good. It's kind of like my daughter, when the pieces don't exactly fit and she just is pushing them, slamming them with her fist, trying to make something that wasn't supposed to be there be there. You know what I mean? Let Let the Bible renew your imagination Let it speak to you and show you what it looks like when everything wrong is set to rights. Because once you can imagine it, then you can begin to image it. Once you can imagine it, then you can begin to actually make that thing visible. Third, you can't fight injustice with more injustice. You can't fight injustice with more injustice. I have seen justice warriors demonize those on the other side. And I have heard justice warriors spew hate and slander and shame and curse each other and cancel each other. You see it too, I'm no doubt. This way of fighting for justice is not bringing us closer to shalom. It is not moving the ball forward. They may claim it is, it is not. There is a better way There is the way of Jesus. And again, to quote Dr. Martin Luther King, he says it best. He says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Finally, We want to help you learn to connect what you are studying with God's redemptive work in the world. Is the point of your college education simply to enrich yourself? Are you here simply to get a degree so you can get a job, so you can get some money, so you can get a house and then a car and a country club membership? And is that is that the point of this? Is this the story that your life is a part of? Or are you part of a bigger and better story? A story where God makes a good and beautiful world full of justice. A world that we have broken, but a world that God is putting back together again. And you get to help. Is that the narrative that your life finds meaning in? Because if it is, then the reason why you're here is so that you can acquire skills. And not just skills, you can acquire friends and habits of heart, and a character that's going to enable you and empower you to participate in God's mission to save the world. Does God care about justice? I submit to you tonight that he very much does. Jesus is the proof of all of that. Please uh, pray with me.